hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 80. Today's guest is Rebecca Stark. She's on the line. We'll get to her in just a minute. Before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry because you're here watching on a cold and snowy night, probably. And uh, if you do, please click the like button and share, and make sure you're subscribed anywhere uh, we are on social media or on video apps, wherever you're listening to this later. On iTunes, give us a star rating. Whatever you can do to click something helps us out a lot. Um, I should also say for any new people um, who are watching tonight live, we do have an open mic show at the second hour. So um, after an hour with Rebecca, we'll be going to the open lines. So think about something you'd like to share. You can share a poem of your own. You can share a poem you love. The prompt this week was to write a poem about a an encounter with a stranger. So if you have a poem about that and it wasn't prepared, but you can still send it in. Um, I'll give you the numbers later uh, to join us on the open mic. But um, for now, you can just send a, send a poem if you'd like to share one to uh, open mic, open M-I-C at rattle.com at any time during the show. And um, if you're not here, we could also read a poem for you. Um, priority goes to new callers and um, people uh, who are here. But uh, if we have time, I can read poems too. So uh, send some poems on along. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Rebecca Starks is today's um, guest and Rebecca is the author of two books from Able Muse Press. I'll put uh, the one that's out on screen right now. Um, that is uh, Time is Always Now from Able Muse Press. It was, just came out last year. Her other book is Fetch Muse, which is forthcoming from Able Muse Press. Um, Rebecca is the winner of the 2018 Rattle or um, Neil Postman Award for Metaphor for her poem uh, Open Carry, which uh, you can find on, on our Facebook page and stuff right now, actually, at the top. And... Um, She's also um, founding editor of Mud Season Review. She lives in, uh, in uh, Richmond, Vermont. And uh, here she is, Rebecca Starks. Hey, Rebecca, how you doing? Hi, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, um, so first of all, how are you doing tonight? Um, I know it's, there's storms brewing all over the place. Are you, um, you say, I, I noticed the, the wonderful log cabin you have back there. Um, yeah, well, we're glad the power didn't go out. Um, the kids were home from school, so <laughs> they had a fun day in the snow. Yeah, yeah, and you're you're. Is it rural where you live? You it's, you describe it, it as a cabin pretty, in the woods. Yeah, yeah. It seems rural. We can't we can't see any neighbors. Um, but just about six minutes down the road is a town. I mean, you know, it's a town of four thousand people, but then about half an hour to Burlington, which feels now like the big city. <laughs> I've kind of yeah. gone smaller and smaller in my life from New York City to Portland, Oregon. And, mm-hmm. um, um, do you want to start us out with a poem? Yeah, I thought I'd start um, with one, a good friend and poet of mine um, thought this was a pandemic poem now. I wrote it actually as a poem of uh, trying to have a second child, and uh, but it, it feels now sort of appropriate for this time. Um, only Child, sorry, it's on page 73. Only Child. The first spring, Andy cleared the vines that gave the tree its only green, some 12 feet high and never pruned. It sprouted simple, unlobed leaves. We watched their light green glow unfold in delicate tongues with curled tips along a few weak, rain-soaked boughs bent like whips of forsythia. The second they had begun to bunch and crowd enough we had no qualms twisting sprigs from the longest branch to test our local nurseries and arborists we hoped could tell its Latin or its common name but dove-like we returned each time, embellished by new ignorance. 
Still Andy's suspicion, fruit tree bearing no fruit, until that fall, unshaded by its canopy, a large green pear, rock hard, appeared bare on the ground with broken stem, while in the tree no sign of pears, but one torn white strip on a limb, where this one might have hung unseen. Had some young boy like Augustine returned it with remorse, lobbed it over the wrong fence, giving us this mistaken April hope of more? Or had the tree spent all on this, revived devotion pushing forth more than a season's growth supports? It kept and ripened for a year. Thanks so much. And that was, um, that was Only Child from um, the book that's available now, uh, Time is Always Now by... Rebecca Starks. Rebecca, do you want to describe a little bit um, what um, what the what the title means? The time is always now. Um, um, how do you how did you um, for this first book think of of constructing it and putting together the poems as a manuscript? And and, and how did the themes yeah. emerge? Well, I um, that title suggestion came from someone else, from Maggie Smith, actually, who looked at the um, at the manuscript for me and. It came from a line from a poem that you published, actually, Politicians. It was one that um, one of the Poets Respond poems. And she felt, and as soon as she pointed it out, that I could really read each poem against that as a lens. I mean, in terms of issues with the climate, political issues, um, just life in general. Um, it, it just it became the way of tying together poems that really I wrote over a 12-year stretch, I would say. So it helped, um, I don't know, it just helped bring it together for me, understanding the book. And, um, and I, yeah, it, it just gave a, a point for each poem. Um, and, and what was your, um, you know, you mentioned that the, uh, the book took 12 years, you know, coming to, to fruition. Um, what was your journey into poetry? I think you have a PhD in literature, right? Um, yeah. Did, did you I mean, always intend to be a poet or were you more interested in, in teaching and scholarship? Um, how, how did that journey happen? I definitely always wanted to be a writer. I've always sort of swung back and forth between poetry and fiction. Um, and poetry just somehow always wins out. Like I keep thinking, OK, I'll stop writing poems for a while and really focus on fiction. And then there's just always another poem. Um, but I didn't I never wanted to be a scholar and probably grad school was the wrong place to go. But I, um, I thought, well, it, it paid for me to read and have time to write for, for those six years or so. So um, it was, that was the decision behind that. But, but it really, um, it took me in a different direction from what I wanted to, wanted to go in ultimately. Although now, I mean, now I found my way back to teaching, but teaching, reading as a writer, teaching from that point of view, and teaching things that I want to learn about. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I feel more comfortable where I am now. Well, do you want to read a couple more poems? Sure. Um, I thought I'd read a Cemetery at White Point on page 28. Okay. And I can read the one right after, which is, I sort of think of them together, these two poems. Um, the epigraph, so much of the earth that the earth does not feel their intrusion. Joao Cabral de Melo Neto. Passing over the crest, we've gone back in time, become unimaginable either way. So far removed, we can't feel our intrusion. Tire tracks everywhere scar the unfinished land, a craze of desire paths overgrown with grass, less corrections to the rectilinear than errata, 
Any would lead to the point and yield a view of the blue-tinged North Mountains, Tenerife and Sugarloaf silvered over. I pick out what is white, but it's not enough for a name. Heads of gulls dotting the farthest saddle of land, roots staving off erosion, feeding clusters of chickweed flowers, daisies, white clover with its spider-like mandibles, but also dandelions, harebells, blue flag. Round white granite stones studding the thin green sod, shorn where bedrock has collapsed into sea stacks. The cairn looks unreachable and we don't try. Clouds would be white and waves breaking on themselves in rough weather, fog gathering overnight, snow in its season, this a clear summer day. Rich white of the seagull breasts wheeling, keening, one bleeding like a sheep after something lost, leaving streaks of guano opaque to the light. Until we come to the solitary cross, four feet tall, the solid planks nailed together, at their crux a minuscule bronze crucifix, standing guard over a cordoned stretch of grass, as if it lay fallow or had just been sown. A cemetery, then, whose low, hunched-back stones, no different from the others strewn about, must mark graves of shipwrecked sailors or hold their place. Too little soil to cover a body here, even beneath the soul-engraved stone, the words we stoop to glean, tomb of the unknown sailor, adding nothing, everything, to what surrounds. Like the brightest star in a constellation, nearer than the rest, or immensely farther. Someone must come every few years to repaint what I knew at once to be the small white scratch we'd spied from the top of Tenerife Mountain, its name the Guanche words for mountain and white, an island people who forgot how to sail and sent young men off cliffs to speak with the dead through your binoculars shaken by the wind. Excellent. And that was uh, Cemetery at White Point. And uh, let's hear the Book of the Dead. Next. Book of the Dead, yeah. I scroll down through the news feed the way my parents comb obituaries for the jolt of finding what I care about or want to show I do. I do, by sending flowers, clicking like once enough nerve impulses fire. It has nothing to do with liking. It's like giving out change on the street, and over time I'm less giving, distrusting the habit I'm feeding in us both, how it inflates a currency untethered from memory until I'm dismissive as one who's seen too much of those who've seen too little to align the telescope of need. As with each touch on its siphon, the sea, sea slug withdraws her gills until nothing can move her except bodily. They'd have to pour their hearts out, risky as that is. What if no one likes it? Everyone agrees the book's a waste of time, but you have to ask yourself, if these are our lives, which is the waste? I scan each page anyway, ever since a friend died unnoticed, buried in my newsfeed for a year and a half. First gone missing for a week, then found in the Hudson, his glasses on shore. I know how he would have folded them, how his eyes looked newborn without them. They won't look at me anymore except in profile, the one that's been left up, so I can tell his ka I'm thinking of him, share my little news, my meals, answer that post I neglected, wish him a happy birthday, the way we did in our last exchange, throwing Dante at each other, always reading too much into words. Nel mezzo del camin, lasciate ogni speranza a sua madre. He doesn't like any of it. But his is the page I fall open to in this book of coming out into the light. Yeah, and that was uh, Book of the Dead from um, Time is Always Now. And, and it shows those poems that, that we, you've read so far show how, how rich, I think, um, your poems are. A lot of poets, um, you know, I, I read a book a week now through this um, <laughs> because we have this, which is great for me. I love it. And um, 
usually I don't read many poems twice. I just read through the book. But your poems are so rich that I, I found myself going back and rereading um, and sort of putting together the imagery, which l moves around and braids through different places a lot. Um, how do you go about constructing a poem? Are these built together, sort of condensed and condensed after many drafts? Um, that's kind of how I was imagining it. But um, I don't know. H what's your process like as a writer? I mean, it's changed a little. I definitely am someone who has revised um, for a long, you know, I revise things a lot. Um, though with the Poets Respond, I sort of had to jump me into a different mode. And um, But I, it kind of comes pretty dense for me. And I try to, um, I try to winnow out a little, actually, or to space out, um, to space things out. I just think that's naturally how how things more things like things just pull in more things and it's my effort is actually to try to space it out oh that's interesting um, so yeah i'm sorry if it, they're still very dense <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, no they're dense in a good way though there's a richness in and in a beauty of the writing and the and it moves I mean, through a lot of material there, there's also these um we haven't gotten to it yet but there are uh, these poems that have different sections and the sections move through different um sort of almost unrelated um I mean, not unrelated, but but different characters and things. They move through different scenes that sort of relate to each other in a way that maybe um, the, the haiku and the haiga or the prose part of a haiga would fit together or something like that, where um, the the connection is sort of metaphorical. Um, do you do they come out that way too? Um, is how do you how do you determine like how long a poem is going to be? Um, whether or not you're going to use sections like that? Um, how do you approach it? Yeah, it helps to think maybe of a particular poem um sometimes if they're longer they've usually taken longer um so i've had more time to try to understand what was drawing me to the material in the first place and um i mean maybe because sometimes i write stories they also tend to work in that way of just having more detail or <laughs> um you know i know um Louise Glick talks about poetry being autobiography without the detail. And sometimes I think, you know, I, the detail, some, it still feels important to me sometimes, or it, it feels like it, it symbolizes something. And I'm working with that to understand, to actually understand something that happened. Um, yeah. Um, earlier you mentioned, um, you know, writing fiction too. And uh, Caitlin Buxbaum here says that sounds like me trying to quit poetry for fiction all the time. And, and <laughs> me too. I, um, I, I, want to write fiction and I always end up pulling it back into poetry and I can't help it. Do you, why do you think that is? Like, why are you drawn to poetry? Um, have you, you haven't published fiction books, have you? Not books. Yeah. I have a collection of stories that mm -hmm. I would like to, I've been, I've published a few individually. So, yeah. so why do you find yourself being pulled toward poetry though? I, the easy answer would be that there's time for that. It feels like I can do that, then I need a longer stretch and more time to myself to do fiction. But I think there's something just about the concentration of it. I mean, I poetry is concentrated, and I love that feeling of concentration in it and through it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what keeps coming, you know, bringing me back to it. Um, and and the for, you know the idea of form somehow if I start writing it just wants to be in lines and then I want to think how many syllables or how many stresses or you know there's something I I like numbers and <laughs> I think it also it just naturally kind of fall into that patterning that it can't do with with fiction. Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, if anybody has any questions for um, Rebecca Starks, um, just let me know in the in the chat windows. I'm watching uh, Facebook and YouTube. Um, I see Alex Peppel is here from Able Muse. Uh, great to see. I just say I love Able Muse. It's probably my, you know, you do great work. It's you're one of my favorite publishers for sure. Um, so it's great to, great to have you here. Um, do you want to read another poem? Sure. Um, I thought I'd read Parable of Two Sons on 76. Okay. I'm realizing I kind of, I picked a lot of biblical imagery and it's not, it, I'm not uh, religious in any, um, in any uh, established sense, but the, you know, the imagery has made its way into my life. Um, Parable of Two Sons. Because no altar of the nightly news orients our unlocked cabin, just four-point windows turning over the local rocks, the pileated woodpecker picking at stale sumac berries, a wild turkey family advancing their necks up over the hill, a sharp-shinned hawk clutching a snake. To prepare my sons for the wider world, at night I read them Bible stories, broadcast with modern facts and photographs. A ram's horn, threshing tools, fig cakes, the myrrh and makeup Esther likely used, mulberry, henna, coal, to win favor for their people. And at the, at the well, me with a nose ring like a cow's. Story after story, my firstborn shrugs off, knowing seas part in a tsunami, resurrection rouses from a deep sleep. A sandbar affords a path on water. Until he loses his footing, the waves close in and he falls silent at Stephen's stoning, John the Baptist's head, Jephthah's daughter's sacrifice. Meanwhile, his younger brother, favored both have taken note, who for some months has asked for only one story, how we became people from wild apes, not fossil records and tectonic plates, but the turning, imaginal disks in their slip, stops asking why and sinks into the mystery of story. When in the story three times a child dies, each time he is restored to life by Samuel, by Elisha, by Jesus, I hear a release of breath, my son's breath that would clear the heavens. That was Parable of Two Sons. Once again, from from time as always. Now, um, we we haven't um, talked to many poets um, as guests on the Rattlecast who are editors too. And you're the founding editor of Mud Season Review. Um, how long did you did you work directly on Mud Season Review? Because right now you're you're a consulting editor, right? Yeah, I did for about two and a half years. And I should say there were other. I mean, there's a co-founder with me of, um, and and really we sort of all founded it together as a staff. Um, starting from the Burlington Writers Workshop. So it was, it was sort of something people decided to do on a whim. And I come, someone got appointed to be <laughs> this editor-in-chief, and I, I had no idea what it entailed. So I have a sense of how much time it takes. Um, and then we decided that everyone should just have a two-year term. So once it kind of opened up, just to give way, like let other people in the workshop have that experience and, and work with it. And it was probably about time anyway. It, was, it, it takes a lot <laughs> out of you. Um, but I learned a ton. Yeah, that. that's what I was going to ask. Um, how has it affected your writing, having that experience reading submissions? Because uh, I, I know it, it affects mine and Megan's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think it definitely did. I mean, I think I was very slow to understand writing as writing for an audience. I mean, I was really like recording. It was like recording my listening <laughs> to the world. And um, and it just... it it changes it to start understanding that you're writing to real people and, and wow, a lot of people are writing that same kind of poem or, you know, so you also react in that way too, of kind of feeling like that's not a new place to go or, um, yeah, 
that that image you used is has been used many times <laughs> before. Um, so that was interesting. And it, and it, I mean, I found that I learned also that I loved editing, and it sort of helped me speed up my editing of my own poems. Did um, you do a lot of um, of hands on editing when you were when editor at, at the Mud Season Review? We found pretty quickly you could do that with fiction and nonfiction, but it's mm-hmm. really hard to do that with poetry because there's some people who can take it and run, but a lot of people, or even, you know, I mean, probably myself too, if someone says that last part isn't working, they're just going to go and wreck it more. You know, (laughs) you're no longer in that, Mm -hmm. you know, same place you were when you wrote the poem. You can't find it again. Yeah, yeah, I completely feel the same way. We hardly ever um, have any kind of edits here. Like sometimes there's a line, I'll say this line doesn't work, and we'll cut that line, or usually, or maybe the beginning or the end. Like a lot of times people have a opening stanza, that there was sort of an intro that's not needed and it's better to jump right in. Or sometimes they have an explanatory last stanza, but otherwise we just, it's like a yum yuck. We just take what works. And um, for that same reason, because you can't expect them to come back and, and make it better. It, it, it there actually there's poems too. I don't know if you found this. Have you find, did you find that you could see where a poem had been workshopped too much? Like, um, oh, like I can, you can you can read and you can see like where the voice is sort of flowing in a natural spontaneous way and then you can see it changes and, yeah. and somebody all of a sudden you know you can say like oh this is where the workshop said you needed to do something different and it's a different poem almost and yeah 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 that's interesting i mean i i know that i've been told for short stories like you should write it all in one sitting so that it's a whole it's of a piece even if you end up editing a lot but you'd at least have that feeling of being of a piece. And I think a poem just needs that too. And I mean, one thing I've kind of come to late is also thinking that I don't revise as much. You know, I work on something a lot initially and then it's either going to work or it's not. And I sometimes, you know, I'm quicker to give up on a piece mm-hmm. and and think it's time to work on the next one, not not this one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. Like I um I feel like there's a space that you sort of open. It's almost like a spiritual thing, like you're lighting candles or something and then some um um and, and later you, your um your next book is Fetch Muse, so maybe you have feelings about this too, but but I feel like you're opening up this special space and like you can't step in the same river twice almost. So I feel like I have a when I used to write a lot, I would write into the night and then just stay up until I finished because I felt like if I went to bed I couldn't get back into the same poem. It was gone. Yeah. And I was like a different person. And I could rewrite the poem. Like if it didn't work, I could go back and rewrite the poem in a different way, like start from scratch. But uh, but I couldn't do the same poem again. Do you, do you find that too? Yeah, I think so. And also just to keep open certain possibilities as long as possible. Like I've kind of learned to do that when I'm writing it, like not to make a choice about form early on or... Um, just, I don't know, there's some way you can keep it open for longer where you're still in that gathering stage or something. And then there's the stage where it's, it's going to whirl together or not, you know, mm-hmm. and then you've committed, you can't break out of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm always fascinated because I talk to a lot of people who, who like feel like the work is in the revision and I have no idea how they can function mm-hmm. that way. I don't know how that works. Um, I, you know, you can do line edits and stuff and, and fix little things, but I've never yeah. figured out how to um, work on, on pieces more than one day, really. Um, well, let's hear another poem. What do you want to do next? Yeah, well, I can leave the um, time is always now and read the poem that's coming forthcoming in Rattle. Sure, yeah, and this work. is um, yeah, this is going to be coming out in um, Rattle number seventy-two this June. So we're about to be working on that issue, and this is Paper Birches and Snow. Yeah. Okay. 
Paper birches in snow. Impossible to see the birches and not think white fragility, their thin skin and shallow roots making them first to topple with the thaw. Here a slant across the path, too, caught easily in the crook of a red oak. Or of my uncle in Bowling Green crying in an argument no one was having. I have roots, too, just as good and just as true. Or how a working-class neighbor left her church once the minister spoke of white privilege. Everywhere the sodden white segments lie, ringed and knuckled black, and loosened scrolls of bark curl around coral yellow lining. Now that he's retired from the bank, my uncle spends his days rooting in genealogy, looking backward to what made him who he is. Mourning more than he did mother when she passed, his beloved dog curled by the fire. Last night snow fell, covering the dormant limbs, April fools, and all morning it's rained from the canopy in drips and splats, pitting the waterlogged slush below and haloing tree bark in that unearthly Tarkovsky shine, some with overlapping shingles of lichen, some furrowed in rivulets, some smooth, spackled, streaked, or raw pink where woodpeckers tossed aside old roofing, each detail riveting eyes eager for earth tones, worm castings, mud budding with minutiae, Little green antenna sent up from soft moss, speckled fawn leaves, mushrooms thrusting through matted red pine needles after months of indiscriminate whiteness. Difficult now not to think white privilege, this verge of snow you can trample in any direction without risking wounding anything to the quick, at most a dead limb cracking beneath the billowy comforter, and yours the only tracks leading you back home. And when it melts, more white fragility. The last time I really saw my uncle's wife, I was little. They were hosting Derby Day, mint leaves and lemonade, bouncy toys for us kids running wild, our blonde home-cut hair unbrushed, and then the hush. I knew she was crying because she could never have children, that we were something you could have. Now I see in the peeling flap of graying bark a family keepsake, the brittle bill of sale, and reaching over all the other branches, outlasting them, the browned hand at the auction. I can understand my uncle's looking back. The birch's light bark was meant to be its strength, refusing the sun's fugitive warmth before it could be retracted with the frost. The snow was never white, only transparent. With the thaw, you pick your way more carefully. Water drops run bulging over leaves, magnifying every fertile vein and pore. And so that was paper, birches in snow. And um, see some questions from, uh, from the audience. Um, Richard Westheimer asks, if you ever find a poem you abandoned a while ago that inspires you anew and warrants uh, rededication or revision? I do. I mean, sometimes just going back, um, I do keep things. I tend to be a hoarder that way. Um, I mean, in terms of writing, I just going back and reading something, I can feel that there was still something there. And even if I don't work on that, I kind of feel like I'm back in the zone of poetry again, just from reading over something that still had some life in it. I don't, it's like an ember from a fire or something. Yeah. And then um, another question uh, from, from CB99 videos. Um, Your work is very metrical. Do you start your poems with meter in there or do you bring that in later? And I I noticed a lot of blank verse throughout, um, seems to be what you write in most, I would say. Um, is that something that you do consciously or, you know, is something you try to do or is this how you think? How does, how does, um, how does metrical poetry work for you? Um, I think now it comes more, um, it just comes out that way more. And then I, I sort of notice it and then I might try to regularize something if I'm in the regularizing mood or, um, in a way to kind of justify everything. Um, 
but I, I think early on I, I didn't write in meter and then I had some training with it. Like I, I took a few classes at different points in workshops and just read, read books on it. Um, so I think at early on, I think it was an effort to kind of put something into, into that. Um, and then sometimes I try to get away, you know, get away from it even because it, I'll hear a line suddenly in something. I'm like, oh, I just wrote iambic pentameter, and it just it totally takes everything away from you know. You just hear that line or something. Yeah. Um, another question. Um, uh, Vicky Miko asks. Um, she says, I "Love the way you blend flora and fauna into your poems. Do you have a Do you have a background in ecology studies? I was wondering that too. There's so much, um, you know. There's so much woods, and there's so many much for, flora and fauna. I imagine, and I love that the log cabin in the background." Um, it just seems like such a perfect, I don't know, life or something for a poet who loves nature. Um, do you have a background in, in those kind of studies? Um, or I do you don't. have field guides? How do you, how do you do that? I, do. I mean, I have read some books on it and I do, and we have field guides and, um, I have just always been in nature. I loved just paying attention to those, the small little things in nature. And sometimes I feel like, you know, especially when you live in the woods, like that's what's happening. I, I mean, I, I loved being in the city writing. I feel like that's a, such a vibrant place. And I actually, lo I felt the loss of moving out into nature. And then it kind of opened up this new um, place for me that also feels very natural. I mean, <laughs> to me. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's just trying to pay attention to what's around me. This past year, especially, I feel like I've seen every single thing that's come and gone in the yeah, yeah, for sure. How how long have you lived out there in uh, Vermont? We've been in Vermont about ten years, and in this house about five, I think, yeah, maybe six, six years. And, and do you think, like, have you settled on the place you think is is home now? Do you think you'll you'll stay in the woods, or do you think um, do you do you want to move back to the city? Do you long for that? I would, I mean, the people who have the half and half life kind of have it best, I think, or you <laughs> know, or even just like a month in in a city. Sometimes um, we've been able to travel more um and and that's just having a new environment always is is a nice change um but i for now i feel like we're this feels right for mm -hmm. us and the family it took us a long time to find a house in vermont it's kind of it was kind of very hard market so it took us about four years i think this is the seventh house or something so we feel like we can't move for a long oh, yeah. Time. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, well let's hear hear another poem um this is here muse that is next right yeah, so these are, um, the next poems will be from the Fetch Muse, and this will kind of give a sense. It's not in, it's not only about a dog, but it's, um, that becomes sort of the catalyst for thinking about lots of, lots of questions and um, parenting and other, and, and losses of various sorts. So here, Muse. Here, Muse, I'm calling you by name again, but I'm all out of treats this time. Come curl under the desk and rest the soft black fur of your throat against my socks. Let them absorb the mystic thrum and pulse of vocal cords and jugular above the dog bone tag and wide red collar, your unaccustomed mane. Refuse to lie flat in a mannerly part four, so we loosened it a notch. Don't turn on me your scleral new moon stare, head floored between both paws about to spring, your sighs canting my equilibrium. Come wedge your nose between my feet again, the way you did right off slinking after me from room to room until I'd settled down to unsung argument, the ghostly work I'd saddled myself with to move out west, with just your muzzle holding me in place, unearthed by what it meant, 
this thigh-high charge I couldn't leave behind or eat before, your hard-fixed gaze putting me in your place instead of you and yours, the training crate we disbelieved was kinder than the couch but would have been, the way limits calm children. We had none then, had just a rented nest and time and tentatively each other. You are test of permanence, of parenting, and though we'd grant the difference, at once I felt as jumper cabled to your needs, reduced to your unanswerable state as I'd be as a newborn mother. Terrified, I had nothing to give but my body. Take, eat, the milk clock of its presence, which I bestowed devotedly with what looked like reserve, while like a child you took from me everything, all my faults, but what I tried to teach you. And that was here, Muse. Um, can you talk a little bit, since I, I, I didn't get a chance to read the book yet, because um, it's not out yet, um, yeah. what, what the book is about? What, what does Fetch Muse mean? Are there a lot of Muse poems? Um, and, and why why did you um, come to that subject matter? So that um, we rescued a dog back before we had children, before we were married and before we had children, um, my now husband and I, and... Um, we really put everything into it, you know, and there turned out to be sort of a series of challenges with her and eventually they became insurmountable. But um, it, it was also, it overlapped with the time of first having a child and, um, and I, in this, the question of sort of what responsibility you have to another creature, um, it just it really haunted me for a long time. And then when we moved later, I just, um, I found myself writing, I actually wrote maybe 200, I think it was 256 sonnets, of unrhymed mostly, um, just in a row, like a long narrative, um, kind of a memoir about it all. And then it was too much. I mean, it was too much. So I've spent a lot of time kind of choosing from it and trying to, you know, keep the arc of that narrative, but also give myself some freedom to, I don't know, to make them more lyrical and to focus on other losses that came up at the time or that it was sort of bringing up for me, just realizing how much of my, I don't know, I just think somehow with a relationship with an animal, you come up more against who and what you are um, in a starker way. It's, it can't be about them in the same mm-hmm. way. So it, it really, I just felt like I learned a lot and I think I vaguely had the idea that I was, you know, doing something like Milton and Wordsworth. I mean, it sounds very grandiose, but I really, you know, these people that nobody wants to read. But um, this, that was where I got that sort of addressing the muse from, um, from Milton. And then with Wordsworth, that idea of, you know, the prelude where he kind of develops his mind through, or talks about the development of his mind um, over time. And both of those are still there kind of as echoes, mm-hmm. but, but I tried to get them out as much as possible. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I think we, we have a dog. We never had a dog, um, until recently. And, um, just the amount that, that, um, they depend on you, I think is what matters. You know, it's like, it's like the baby phase forever, you know, yeah. um, yeah. where, where you, you know, they, they need you to eat and they need you to, to take care and make sure that mountain lion doesn't eat them outside. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah. so yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing to, to look at yourself through that lens. Um, you mentioned, um, that, that there was a series of, of 200 plus sonnets and the next one, um, Wasted Wish is one of those in the series, I assume. Do you want to read that to give a, a, yeah. a sense of it? And I'll say, I mean, cause those first one was actually three sonnets that it became, you know, I ended up working in like fours and threes. And anyway, I tried to disguise the sonnets sometimes, but they really all started off like that. Um, 
Yeah, wasted wish. With time, I've come to value the commands I never thought to give for things you did quite well, but never at the times we wanted. Relax for when I couldn't take you out right then, or bark, which you'd come to know by its quiet opposite. Stand to let a vet manipulate your hips, and watch to hold the portal of your mind open to our cues. I learned from watching trainers at the zoo that what my dad forbade as tricks are tricks on those who don't suspect their purpose. Shake no clowning circus act, but a feint letting a man draw a thorn from a lion's paw. When you limped, I wished I'd never taught you heal. Yeah, that's just a great poem, Wasted Wish, um, from the forthcoming book, Fetch Muse. Uh, when is the book coming out? Do you, do you have a date for it yet? Don't have a date, but um, I've, all, the, all the parts are together now. For a while, I was waiting on um, the artwork. I have a friend who is, I sort of commissioned a, you know, an, a cover from, and then he didn't have childcare for six months or so. So um, that set him back. But yeah, I have the cover now. And... Um, yeah, it's a tough time to, to launch a book kind of anyway, because you can't do readings except yeah, for this Yeah, I didn't kind feel like and... in a huge rush. Yeah, it was yeah. sort of like... Yeah. Um, um, how do you feel about like like marketing your poems? You mentioned earlier that it took a long time to realize that um, you were writing for an an audience and a reader instead of just yourself. Um, do you find do you have a difficult time um, like having a book and trying to like get people to buy it, um, or, or is that something that you don't mind doing? Has that changed your thinking about the writing process at all? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's changed my. F- feeling about the writing. I mean, definitely having a book changes things. Just you start thinking in terms of books instead of individual poems more and um, and just how the poems interact with each other. I don't, I don't know that that changed things for me. But um, I mean, I was I felt like it's kind of Vermont is a lucky place for me to be doing this because it's they're a small community. Um, but sort of I don't know, it just feels more natural to do it here. There's just so much with poetry going on. Um, lots of different venues for reading. And, you know, I lived in a co-housing community for three years when we first moved here, three or four years. And that was just a super supportive community. I think everyone there bought my book. You know, it's like, they're, um, so in a way it feels like a lot of family around you and it, it's not as um, as daunting as it might be if I lived somewhere where I really had to push myself out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Now, Daniel Mask here asks if you think of your poems as almost, or do your poems almost resemble prayers? And you mentioned, um, you know, not having a, a specific religious um, view or, or whatever, you, however you phrase it. But um, but do you think of it that way? Is that is it a spiritual act to write a poem and to think of um, your life in that way and sort of put your voice in the world? It, uh, to me, a poem always does seem very much like a prayer. Yeah, I think of. Um... I don't know. I think like um, when I think about Keats's negative capability, like I feel like that is held up a lot. But for me, the part of that that I really hold to is the purposiveness that um, people always talk about. It doesn't have a purpose, you know, the point that the poetry is not for anything. But there's this sense of purpose in it. And I actually I don't have it. I didn't give it to you, but I, one of these sonnets is called Prayer. And it kind of talks about um, language in that way and speaking to a dog like what what does it mean to speak to a dog and have that dog listening to you and then to speak or to you know compared to writing a poem compared to praying to someone mm-hmm. you know it's yeah i i do feel that um that makes sense 
Yeah, it, it definitely does. And um, in the question of um, purpose of poetry, something that we talk about a lot on here, um, what do you think about, what do you think the purpose is? Like, why do we do this thing that we do when we read and write poems? Um, what are they, I mean, you could ask the same question about literature too, just in general, but, um, but, but poetry is a, is a certain kind of, of, I don't know, structuring the human voice. Um, what do you think that the purpose is? What's the use of poetry? Yeah, big question. Um, I mean, what it does for me is it reminds me of what matters. Like if I reading poetry, it starts, it sort of brings me back to bigger pictures. And one, you know, one thing that matters is other people um, and their, and realizing how much each person has in them. Um, that I think in our daily interactions, it's very easy to start being superficial just with other people and with your, your own thoughts and your own concerns. So, I mean, you could say it takes, I, um, you know, it's like preparing you for death. It's, it's preparing you for like a perspective on life that, uh, and that gets back to prayer too. I think just acknowledging how strange it is that we're here and, um, and that we're not here forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, do you want to read uh, the next poem, Misconception? Yeah, Misconception. From the moment I saw the double line, I was struck that I was body, a woman's, blind to how I identified its mind, intent on choosing how it was occupied, admitting what its doubt could not dislodge. Once I was pregnant, my mother thrilled to say, everything I did was full of purpose, eating, sleeping, nurturing the life within. I was too ashamed to say I'd felt that way about my mind, prepared to be a writer's, and now deprived of any other aim but keeping off things it had no hope to change, only endure like a long illness, brooding on that which hadn't yet lived, yet hadn't died. Yeah, that was a misconception from the, the forthcoming book. Reading this poem, I was thinking about how much um, uh, being a parent changed me. Um, how do you think being a parent changed you? Like for me, I used to feel like sort of a, a Buddhist, like Zen, like who cares detachment. And that whole entire worldview like collapses when you're a parent. Yeah. And, and I sort of, I'm still struggling to figure out how to like reground myself because, um, cause things do matter in a, in a way that, um, yeah. you know, talking about the, you know, the responsibility of, of a dog, it's the same kind of thing. Like these themes kind of seem like, at least in my mind, your, your book was inspiring thinking about this kind of sense of purpose in your place in the world and responsibility and, and how it all fits together. Um, did, did parenting, being a parent change you? Um, definitely. Um, I mean, it was hard from the, I think my first feeling was sort of like, I can't believe how much I really was centered around myself for so long. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, I didn't think of myself as a particularly self-centered person, but on the, some ground level, like everything I did, I was really just concerned with myself. So in a, another way, it was sort of a more Buddhist <laughs> kind of like detach from that and really be occupied with somebody, somebody else. Um, and I felt, I mean, the first experience for me was just so visceral of becoming, like identifying so strongly that I almost became like an infant myself, it seemed like. Like I, I felt like I didn't have language until my child grew into language. And um, just feeling so closely. I mean, everything I did before, I did lots of different things, but I could always write and I could always, uh, there was always time to write. And but it was more like this was something that I was giving myself over to completely, whereas I'd always kept something of myself back, I think. So that too changed. And then as they get older, definitely this thought about, you know, 
what it's important for people to know and care about and do in the world changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an interesting way to say it. That, that was really cool. Um, Danny Masks uh, mentions your um, um, your last lines are really great. Um, do you, we, we talked a little bit about the process already, but do you find yourself um, working on the last lines especially? Or um, do you, do they pop out and then you know the poem's over when the last line's there? Or um, how do you, how do you go about the last lines? And what do you try to do? Like some people um, focus on um, like, um, like the, the, the lift of the language and they don't want to have like a, a strong note. Um, I don't know. How do you, how do you go out? Like, like thinking a poem is, is ended. How do you know a last line is a last line? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It just either. I mean, somehow, sometimes that's when a poem doesn't ever, if I don't get to a last line, that poem never gets finished is one way of looking at it. But um, I think I used to, think I t like tend to get too many threads started like I try to and I would try to like somehow pull all of those threads together at the end and I, I think at some point that that failed that wasn't the right way to go about it um, because you know that was me forcing it into into something that felt like it concluded everything nicely or um, so I don't know it often if it, if it takes it somewhere slightly oblique obliquely different and um, that feels right to me I, I just it's very hard to know like to talk about it mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's a mystery it's magic i guess huh? yeah <laughs> <laughs> um um let's let's do other poem we have two poems left we wanted to share so let's do one then talk a little and then do the other probably okay so this one true love after its loss, my body instinctively knew to guard against touch that might revive the roots of neurons I had quarantined and starved, determined to find love again like a bird's nest fern, mixing its own soil from falling leaves, until the gentlest brush of fingers on my arm tingled the skin, flooding me with tenderness I'd damned for years. I haven't let myself get close to dogs since you, though taking one named Sky on runs, I felt a surge of the old eagerness when he'd glance back to catch my eye before doubling down on the chase after nothing. Still dogged by you, I sped up but couldn't fly. That was True Love, again, from um, Fetch Muse, the forthcoming book by Rebecca Starks. Um, another thing I wanted to ask about, which I, I accidentally asked the, um, uh, it just kind of came up in conversation last week, and I forgot that it was you that played the violin in an orchestra. Um, how do you, how do you, um, Performing a poem or, or writing a poem, is there a relationship between that and, and performing on the violin? Um, is there something, the music, the rhythm, um, the, I don't know, is there something that, that they have in common that draws you to both? Or are they sort of separate, um, separate worlds that you just happen to step into at different times? Um, I'm sure they're related in terms of, I mean, I just love the sound of, and rhythm of language and words. It's like, it's just physical feeling that it gives me and I think it's similar for um for music and I mean I grew up playing the violin and I know anytime and I go on runs a lot you know I, and I just always would have music going in my head and that would be before I was writing poetry now I'm often working on poetic lines so I feel like they they occupy the same space in some ways um and I think that they also like I, I th um the idea that you have to get the right note and you know when you get it or not, there's no fudging that. Um, mm. I think it kind of helps train for a kind of, 
maybe perfectionism, but, you know, just a kind of honesty too about, um, about whether it's working or not. And so I find it useful for that or it, you know, I came, I came back to violin. I didn't play it for, um, I don't know, 10 years or so. And then through my kids, I kind of got back into it and they're, you know, this is a non-auditioning orchestra that I'm in. So it's, it's very forgiving. And, uh, um, it's been, it's been a great experience. Of course, I can't play right now, but, um, we did over the summer outside and just that it, it's also a different space because it's that sense of playing with other people and being able to listen to other people at the same time and trying to, you know, adapt so that we had, I don't know, it, it's just a very collective experience too, which is different from poetry. Yeah, that's interesting to, to the idea of notes in a poem. Um, do you, and, and is that what you mean that you can hear, like, like if someone's singing and then a note is flat um, and you, you can hear it, can you hear a note like that in a poem, do you think? Like, would there be yeah. a way to like even like notate poems on the page as far as like, <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be melody, um, but it would, but, but I don't know. Is there something to it like that that you hear? There, well, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's also the meaning of something. I mean, I think it's just fascinating that language works that <laughs> that we like that you can get in a room in a workshop and people can agree like strangers you don't know them and you can agree that word doesn't work there and this you know just on a very subtle level you can start talking with other people about it um so i guess i mean that way i mean there's also i did i think i first really studied poetry french poetry more than hmm. anything else and i know that we talked about vowel you know vowel sounds and different vowel sounds meant different things. It was a very, versification is a very specific way of talking about poetry in that tradition. And so I imagine you could do that. But to me, that I, it'd be too many things to hold on to at once. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, who are the poets that you, that you love to read? Was there a, a poem? Do you remember like back when you first fell in love with poetry? Was there a poem that you um, fell in love with and realized that, that poetry is something special, first of all? And then as a follow-up, like who are you reading now? Yeah, um, the first poem that I remember, like writing out for myself and memorizing, just and I don't know, I was if I was like ten or something like that, was Emily Dickinson's "I'm Nobody, Who Are You?" Like I just loved it. Um, and then, and I remember also, I think it's some Carl Sandburg poem. There's something where he had um, he used some word like surreptitiously, and I thought it was great. <laughs> I, um, but who I'm reading now, I. Um, I'm reading pretty widely now. Like I definitely went through phases where I would just absorb one poet after another. And um, I just read Jane Hirschfeld, um, The Ledger. And I love her writing about poetry also. She's the real um, guiding light. I just also read um, Du Fu, A Life in Poetry by David Young. And um, he was sometimes Tu, tu Fu, you'll see his name, the Chinese poet. I started reading more um, and studying haiku and um, other Japanese forms and now in the, the Chinese poetry too in the ever since the pandemic for some reason it like opened up this I couldn't write other poetry and um, and that was somewhere I could really focus in on and I started exchanging like writing a renga with a my friend in Seattle and um, that kind of kept me grounded mm -hmm. for a while um when we were talking yeah. um, over email, um, you, you mentioned something about, about um, wishing there was more mentorship. Um, I can't remember what the context was. Um, oh, but, yeah, but... I was thinking about Dana Joya's uh, talking about not getting 
I guess it's not getting accurate feedback mm -hmm. from from the world. Yeah. yeah. Have you have you always had sort of a community that you can get that sort of necessary feedback from? Is that something that you've you've struggled to find, or has it always been sort of there I for think, you? I feel like I struggle to find it. I mean, I I wrote so many. I mean, I probably have three books of poems that I would never publish. You know, I, I worked so long just <laughs> on my own. I'm sure I was learning things. Um, there, I think it, it just had this underlying romanticism that was not um, that needed correcting from the world <laughs> or something. You know, I don't know and. Um, I think I would get weird feedback. Like, I feel like some places I went, there was this view, like, you're either a poet or you're not. Like, you're either this genius poet and anything you create is automatically poetry or, you know, or you're not and you should do something else with your life. And I feel like that's not helpful at all. <laughs> you know, and that's the idea, like, this is either a poem or it's not. Um, and... And then there would be other people who say, oh, you know what you're doing. That's just keep doing what you're doing. And mm -hmm. I never felt like I knew what I was doing. So those two extremes were out there too much for me. But I do. then I came to workshops and that I found that was helpful. And I, I did start to find, to find that. And I feel like now I can find it. Mm -hmm. But it, it took a long time to get there. Yeah, I always think of um, the, the question of whether it's a poem or not is, is like a question of intention, really. Like, are you trying to create art? That, that creates something new and sort of makes meaning, which is what I think art does, um, as opposed to sort of express something. That's kind of how I always think of that. Um, yeah. do, you, do you have a poem that you wrote? Like, because you talked about like having a different phase where you haven't sort of figured it out yet. Did, is there a poem where like it's, it clicked for the first time and you realize, sort of, hey, like this is right. This is what I should be doing. Is there a certain poem that, that did that for you? Um. I don't know. I mean, I I know the first time a poem was published. I think that that helped in a way that kind of helped me understand something, or you know that. But um, but I don't feel. I mean, in the the poems that I haven't published, it's almost more like I hadn't figured out myself. Like I think they're. Um, well, that's kind of what I mean. I don't know. I mean yeah. I, like you, you said you figured out yourself. Um, is there a poem where you like realize what yourself was, like what your voice is? Like we talk about voice all yeah. the time. Um, and I think um, I think I've seen you talk about it in an in a interview thing, too, that, that looking for the voice. Um, like what, what is a voice and, and when did you find it? I guess that's really what I'm what I'm asking. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Someone told me like early on that I had a vo like before I had anything else, I had a voice almost before I knew how to write a poem so I don't think that I found that but it did help me to feel like well so the poem that was accepted it ended up being for a political issue I didn't think of myself as a political person or a political poet um and but somehow this sense that I wanted to be telling telling things as I saw them or I I'm not and just just this kind of honesty for me, a, a self-honesty. And um, I think always trying to understand how I was implicated in what I was seeing and judging mm -hmm. um, for me became that, I don't know. I think that's what I, what I hold on to now. Yeah, that is something I, I meant to ask about and kind of forgot. Um, you do have a lot of political poetry, especially in the, I'm not sure about the, um, the, the book coming up, but in, um, in uh, Time is Always Now. Um, there are a lot of political poems, but that section in the middle, especially, and, and mm -hmm. three, I think, for Poets Respond, that are all pretty political. And um, I think political poetry is really hard because the, you lose that 
like you like we mostly know what we think politically and um how do you go about like writing a political poem that still has that sense of mystery and still um you know, i think you phrased it as finding your place uh, just now finding your place within the the topic or i can't remember how you said mm-hmm. it but um how do you go about approaching like how do you know it's just so hard to write poems when you already have like a political opinion i think so how do you deal with that yeah, I mean, and sometimes what will happen is I'll write a poem and it might even afterwards be like, I hope it doesn't make it look like I have this opinion I don't have. But, you know, but I'm trying to explore this thing. I mean, I know like Yeats talks about, I think, yeah, he says rhetoric is a quarrel with others and poetry is a quarrel with yourself. Mm. And so if there's some place I can find for a quarrel with myself a little bit in it, um, and almost trying to get to that place that's pre-political. I mean, for a long time, I wasn't political. Um, I mean, you know, maybe until like my mid-20s. I, I mean, there are ways in which I was, but I didn't recognize it as political. I wouldn't have thought of it in terms of political parties. or um, I felt almost like I couldn't know enough to ever make a decision about that. Like I had a very agnostic view about whether we could know enough to make decisions. Now it feels very clear to me what you can know, but... Um, just to try to return to that place of not knowing and almost to that psychological place. Like, I think partly I thought politics, I just always saw it um, psychologically. Like I saw what people were getting out of something psychologically or where they were shoring themselves up with something. And it was very hard for me to lose that viewpoint. Um, But yeah, so for poetry to me, that's maybe not the best place for that it's, it's separate from what you do when you go vote and mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure I, i'd never heard that quote um that rhetoric is a quarrel with others and poetry is a quarrel with yourself that's such a great um a great quote um you already had a quest a request anyway we we i played this poem last week but um um over on facebook um tua Noor asked if you could read open carry and since it, it, it applies yeah. i think it's one of the best political poems we have we had so many poems about um you know shootings and and mass shootings and and you know guns in america and um and this was after the las vegas shooting and i still think it's one of the best political poems we've ever published in a long series of um poems that are very political in uh, poets respond especially um would you mind reading that and then maybe you can finish up with the last one after sure um open carry las vegas october 1 2017 What if each of their lives had stood a folded umbrella until that day? What if the National Umbrella Association lobbied to repeal Lux laws and we could open umbrellas in the house, lay them on beds and give them as gifts, and even on sunny days carry them open in nightclubs and places of worship, movie theaters and elementary schools, offices and outdoor concerts, a real cause so we no longer had to leave them shut up in closets or hanging on walls or leaning against porch railings or stashed in bedside drawers in hotels? so that everyone could be prepared, everyone saved, the black honeycomb stand its ground shoulder to shoulder against the cloud's dark motive. It rains four inches a year in Las Vegas. What if this isn't the time to talk about umbrellas? I have one in my bag right now, a Robinson, a Gamp, a spring-loaded automatic. At a touch, it will bloom to receive the syncopated sound of rain dancing, hopping on the taut roof, the way a gun can sound like firecrackers from the sky. It's true there are still puddles and spray. There's the lower half of you. The arm aches. The skin blows inside out like a skirt in the wind. Here and there a man tries to shield a woman, covering suede and silk and hair with his outspread body. 
What if umbrellas don't keep you dry? People do and are broken trying. Yeah, and that was Open Carry, which, of course, won the uh, Neil Postman Award for Metaphor. Before you read the last poem, um, I, I missed uh, Brent Stoffer's question here, which, which applies to this poem, too. He says, you're great with extended metaphor. Is that something you admire in other poets? And um, is it how do you um, how do you go about that, too? Do you do you notice something that could be and then you dive into it? Um, but yeah, how do you think about extended metaphor in, in poems? Because it is something that, that you'd use a lot. I mean, honestly, I never thought about metaphor at all until um, I won the prize for, <laughs> for metaphor. I didn't realize that, that that I did that and or think about it consciously. I think for me, it's the thought of just mapping of mapping myself onto the world or the world, like trying to go from something I knew to something I didn't know um, and using that. I mean, it feels very like the child's edge of what you know what you understand. Um, so, and then I, yeah, yeah, I guess I just, I do kind of think exhaustively about this. So I, once I'm in it, then I try to think what else that draws in with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope someone's writing down these quotes, the child's edge of what you understand. You you talk in poetry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you, do you want to finish up with the last poem of what ego? Sure. Um, and this is the last poem of the book. What ego? What ego thinking you're the only one who can make your dog happy? A Buddhist neighbor consoled us, missing the mark. Tomorrow's walk less a new walk than a palimpsest of blinkers signaling all our wrong turns, a time lapse of out of sync fireflies, hissing cat, chittering squirrel, memories planted like bulbs so crowded they come up blind. Indoors, my center became displaced without you, angling for windfall, fetishizing the swish of ripstop, alert to lapse and loophole. When I drove, I still lowered the back windows and took each turn slowly, conscious of my wake. There was more to me than me. Call it you. Excellent. That was What Ego from uh, Rebecca Stark's forthcoming book, um, Fetch Muse. Um, Thanks so much for joining us, Rebecca. It's been a real pleasure. A lot of great insights and and comments. I really appreciate it. And wonderful poems, too. Thanks so much for being a guest tonight. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I love watching these and so honored to be on. So thank you. Yeah, honored to have you. Thanks. Have a good night and stay warm up there. Okay, yes. Yeah, bye. Everyone else too. Bye. Yeah, that was Rebecca Starks uh, with um, poems for her newest book that's forthcoming and also um, her book that is out now from Abel Muse Press, uh, Time is Always Now. And you can find, of course, Abel Muse Press at com, just like you'd think it says, com. So um, pick up a copy of Rebecca's book there and her forthcoming book too, Um whenever it's out. Um, So now it is time for the open mic. And as I mentioned, the prompt for this week was uh, to write a poem about an encounter with a stranger. Um, You don't have to write a poem about a prompt, but if you have one, um, or if you wrote one, um, please do send it over to me. Now I'll put this on screen here. Um, Not there. I'll put it on screen here. The phone number is... Uh, 818-850-7727. Call, let it ring a couple times, then hang up. I will call you back and time is right. That's how you get onto the uh, call list. And uh, if you would prefer over Skype, uh, so we can see it too with video, uh, do that. You just need this free Skype app. And how you do that is send me a chat message over Skype to Rattle Poetry, all one word. That's Rattle Poetry, just like you'd think, all one word. 
um, just type that into the old search bar, send me a little wave and say hi, and I will call you back within the hour. Um, of course, first time callers always, um, we get to no matter what. And, um, uh, but before you do that too, send a poem to us, uh, what you'd like to read or share to open mic at rattle.com. That's open MIC at rattle.com. And, um, then I can show it on screen. If you can't, for some reason, call in, I can read it for you if we have time. Um, and also if, if anybody would like to, I'd st- I've said this before, but if anybody would like to read a poem, that's just their favorite poem and not by them. I think it's totally fine to do that. And so, um, you know, somebody can send us the cease and desist if they don't want to. Um, maybe we'll just show, um, you know, just listen and not put up the words on screen in, in that case. But uh, I, I'd love to do that a little bit more, too, to, to show some other poems. But anyway, so that is uh, what's going on after just a little bit of a uh, couple-minute break. I'm going to stand up and stretch my legs and get everything set up. And I will be back with you in, uh, in about 30 seconds, maybe. So just give me a a couple minutes. Here we go. Oh, and I should say before I go, I try to do this too. Um, Next week's guest on the Rattlecast, just for people who are bailing out now and only we're here for the first hour, uh, next week's guest is going to be Derek Sheffield and his newest book, Not for Luck. Uh, Derek Sheffield is um, in the winter issue of Rattle. Um, Just a wonderful poet and um, looking forward to that. He's also, we've been publishing his children for a long time. We're going to have a special guest appearance by his daughter, Zoe, at the beginning of the show, reading one of her poems from uh, one of the, the early Rattle Young Poets anthologies. So looking forward to that, too. That's Rattlecast number 81 uh, with Derek Sheffield next Tuesday, February 23rd. And um, now I'm going to take a little break. I'll be back in like 30 seconds. So uh, just hang tight. See you in a minute. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, hope everybody got a chance to freshen their drink, throw another log on the fire. <laughs> Caitlin Buxbaum says, uh, people bailing lame. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, an hour for poetry is a good amount of time for poetry. I don't, I don't really blame anybody for bailing when they do. But it's, it's just a fact that, uh, that we get twice the viewers for the first hour is the second. But, um, but I love the second just as much, so we're not, we're not getting rid of it. And um, I just love the open lines. I always, um, I've talked about this before, but I'm a big fan of the old Art Bell show. I used to work a lot of overnight shifts. And I just love open lines on the old Art Bell show. And never knowing what people are going to write about or what you're going to hear. It's just a lot of fun. And of course, I love poetry. So I love um, all this. And I love um, having a place to write a poem every week and um, providing that for people where there's some, some feedback, there's a place to share, there's a reason to write. And that's why we do what we do. And I love doing this. So uh, we're always going to be doing it. And uh, now the prompt, as I mentioned for this week, was I put them on paper this time. I don't know why. I'm experimenting to see if I like this better. But um, uh, this is uh, this week's prompt. Write a poem about a chance encounter with a stranger. That was our prompt for this week. So if you have one of those, uh, once again, um, email it to openmic at rattle.com. Uh, but you can send anything you'd like if you'd like to write, um, share something else, any poem you've published, anything you'd like to do. Send it to openmic at rattle.com and then call me up at 818-850-7727 or send me a chat message over... Uh, Skype to Rattle Poetry, and we'll get you in and uh, share some poems. So looking forward to it. Now, um, okay, so this is uh, the prompt for the week. Write a poem about a chance encounter with a stranger. And here's Megan's poem. This is Lost and Found. I haven't read it yet, so let's see. I'll tell you if it's true or not. Lost and Found. I used to walk around Studio City for hours in the afternoon heat, convinced that I was fat. 
that my body was failing me, ignoring the gelato shops, the Italian cafes, the men who asked for money and called me sweet lady. One day, an elderly woman approached me on the sidewalk. I'd taken a different route that day, a residential neighborhood, identical box houses in a tidy row. A woman's face was a question, soft and open as a sunflower. And I knew before she spoke what she would say. Do you know where I am? She didn't know her name. Oh, she kept saying. Oh, I just had it. I used to know. I told her it was okay, that we would figure it out. Panic and responsibility tightening my throat. Twenty-two years old and lost in more ways than me. Than one. When a man approached out of nowhere, my age, kindness, kind eyes, and asked if we needed help, I gathered him into the story, and now he was part of this. The woman with no name on a street like any other. Once she lived in Texas, she said. She might have a daughter. She grasped my hand and said, I'm sorry. And the man said, you have nothing to be sorry about. And the three of us stood there in the midday sun, warm and confused and together, until a woman pulled up in a gray car and stumbled out, gasping, Mom, oh God, Mom. And the man and I stepped back, nodding off, her tearful thank yous, watching the two of them drive away, looking at each other for a long moment before wordlessly heading in opposite directions, watching our feet take us home, saying every street name out loud. That was Megan's poem, Lost and Found, about the chance encounter with a stranger. And um, yeah, that is a true story. I remember that. Um, I wasn't there, of course, but she told me the whole thing when she got home that day. Um, now, my poem, I... Um, I used to write these um, in the style, I used to call it train. And the idea was to um, sort of have this, this way of writing where um, the, the, the words just sort of piled on. The phrases kept, kept going like a train and you couldn't sort of stop them. And so there's like a tension that builds up between, um, uh, you know, between the sort of relentlessness of the verse. So you sort of go and in, 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 there's no punctuation. So you can sort of go at your own pace as you read. And there are a bunch of these in my book. Um, and I haven't written them in a long time. And Alison uh, Townsend last week mentioned it, the style and asked if, like, if I called it something. And it made me think, like, why don't I write those? So I thought I would write one. And um, I, took, um, I took the content from a, a sort of a nonfiction piece I had that, that I wasn't really doing anything with. And this is a true story, too, about a chance meeting with a stranger. It's a little long because the style is a little long. So bear with me. Um, I'm sorry about that, but um, this is a true story, too, about the last time I uh, saw my father. And um, here goes. This is, it. This is uh, Terminal B. Tuesday morning, two of us there in the janitor gliding his chrome vacuum up and down the aisles of pod-like plastic chairs, a glowing eye gobbling up the last day's dust, the janitor pausing to pass its whirring mouth over a single patch of pale carpet, Four times back and forth, catching every crumb. Any job worth doing is worth doing well, you told me in my mind, but didn't see me. As I sat down three rows back, seven to the right. Strangers now, but not strangers. Still father and son. And I noticed the first, first the back of your balding head. Silver cirrus on a pink moon, your comb over, you called it, laughing at, as you combed it over. Older now, but still my father. 
the first two in the terminal by chance, you sitting as you always sat, legs crossed, ankle to knee, left ankle over the aching right knee, lapping peach yogurt from an inverted spoon. You always dipped just the tip of the spoon into your yogurt, a toe in a lake. You could eat for hours, and you ate for hours, it seemed, lifting the spoon to your lips, then pausing as if contemplating the complexity of life before licking the roof of the plastic dome, sucking the cultured cream, then rolling the tiny chunks of fruit on your tongue, swallowing finely as you drew the next tiny scoop. I didn't know what to do. You didn't see me. Headed home through Chicago, you hung like a flipped coin, dead center between two dark gates, 720 to Houston or my 655. In my mind, a three-hour flight, strapped to a seat by your silence. The last time I saw you, I pulled into the driveway. You stood at the window at the sink, face framed by the yellow curtains of the kitchen, eyes down on the dishes, scrubbing hard at an unseen pot or pan. You could see me. I could see you seeing me through your stillness, back and forth at the dishes, my car in the driveway idling loud, the rumble from the muffler on the glass as I sat there watching you, not watching me, scrubbing hard on the pot or the pan that was or wasn't there until you turned and disappeared deep into the house. The curtains moved. The curtains were still. You didn't see me. Three rows back, seven to the right. You finished the yogurt, empty carton like a soldier on the seat to your left, sipping coffee from a paper cup. The janitor buzzed past with his vacuum saying, I'm sorry. I tucked my legs to the side. The sun hadn't risen. The dark of the tarmac made a mirror of the glass, a gulf of blue chairs between us like ocean waves. If you looked, we'd have looked like a mural on a dark wall. All I could think was Chicago or Houston, Chicago or Houston, 610, 625. You scratched the bridge of your nose with a thick nail. No glasses now, I noticed. Still dressed the same, same watch band, a brown leather. No rings, Chicago or Houston. You didn't move. A line was beginning to cue. It trickled down the blue ramp. The slips of paper scanned with their beeps, each passenger clutching a briefcase, rolling a bag. No one spoke. It was too early to speak. Most of the terminal still dark. Last call for Chicago. You didn't move, so I did. So that is, um, and it was fun writing in that style for the first time in, in a long time. Those Terminal B. Hope you enjoyed that. Sorry it was a little long. Um, let's see. Let's go on to the open lines. And... Um, the first caller should be, hey, Mike, this is Tim. Uh, I want to share a uh, poem. Hang on, let me pull you in because you're not yet. Okay. Do, do you want to share a poem? Okay, alternator. A man I've never seen before stood by the front counter. The mechanic said I needed a new alternator. The man said that people were spying on him. The mechanic wiped his hands. The man said that he could save the world with his story. The mechanic said that he'd call for the part. The man asked for a spare dollar and turned his back. The mechanic said that he must live nearby. The man said that he was trying to bring his wife back his wife. The mechanic took a call. The man said he wanted a can of pop. The manic, ma- mechanic said it would be an hour. The man said that service was better at another shop. The mechanic told him to leave. The man stepped outside on a sunny day. I watched his shadow disappear. Uh, thanks so much for sharing. That was Mike Bales with the Alternator. Yeah. And um, yeah, Thank excellent, you. excellent description of that scene. Thanks for sharing it, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'll talk to you some other time. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks. Have a good night. All right, see you. Bye. Yeah, it was Mike Bales. Let's call up. Um, 
we'll just go in order. Let's go to Nivedita. Let's see, did is she gone yet? It's a small poem. Yeah, let's call up Nivy, see if Nivy is still here tonight. Or if she's or this morning for her, if she's gone to work yet. Let's see. Hey Nivedita, how are you doing tonight? Or this morning, I should say. Hey Tim, I'm doing I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. Um and so what do you have for us? A stranger? Mm-hmm. Is there anything so you want to say about I, it before? You know, this, yeah. Um, how much? Just, just one line that I don't think anything or anybody is stranger to us than ourselves. So it's sort of like how it would be like if you probably met your future self, something on those lines. Interesting. So okay, well, I'm looking forward to hearing Basically, this. we're the stranger to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Let's hear it. Stranger. On this lonely highway, winding around the bluff and heading down to the coast, the little yellow car followed me through the gate and into the park. Winding round the bluff and heading down to the coast, on this lonely highway, the little yellow car followed me through the gate and into the park. A stranger in a suit and me in faded jeans square up silently, not daring to speak, for fear of breaking the spell around us. Hesitant steps we take in this quintessential Italian garden. In this quintessential Italian garden, hesitant steps we take for fear of breaking the spell around us. A stranger in a suit and me in faded jeans square off silently, not daring to speak. That's how we met, seemingly a hundred years ago, but only just yesterday I stepped off a boat on holiday, my future self and I. Seemingly a hundred years ago I stepped off a boat on holiday. That's how we met, my future self and I, but only just yesterday. Oh, I love that. That was fascinating. Thanks so much for sharing that. It was a stranger by Nivedita Karthik. Thanks, Nivy. Thank you so much, Tim. Have a good evening. You too. Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah, Nivedita Karthik starting out her day with poetry, the best way to do it. Um, let's call up Brent and talk to him about his stranger poem, Brent Stauffer. Uh, phone's ringing now for Brent. I'll mute him because there's always that, like, snap as he comes in. We'll, we'll save that, but I'll unmute him. Here he comes. Yep, you're good. You're good. Oh, I'm doing good. Um I can't see, I can't see you, but I guess that's all right. Yeah, it looks like it's working for me. I, I see myself in the little corner of uh, Skype, but I don't know. Um, okay, I'm just getting a post. But I know what you look like, so I can imagine it. <laughs> you just imagine me. I always look the same. <laughs> Nothing really changes. <laughs> um, so so uh, where, where, where do you live? I can't remember. Uh, it's been so long since you called for the first time. Yeah, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, so you get in the cold and the we got, snow and stuff. We got, we got snow this morning. Yeah. Is uh, how often does that I happen mean, that that you get like um, snow that sticks? We will normally uh, sometimes a whole sometimes about once a year. Uh huh. Sometimes, sometimes it'll skip a year. Sometimes we'll get it three or four times in one year. Um, but it's always like a big occasion <laughs> when when it happens and. Um, uh, I mean, uh, stores were closing uh, at noon yesterday, and we got like um, a half an inch of snow mm-hmm. that was gone by this afternoon. Oh. Um, <laughs> but uh, but people were worried about the ice because um, one time there was a snap ice storm, and like thousands of people got stranded on the road. Oh yeah. So people are real scared about that. Yeah, yeah. we had one of those in uh, like 93, I think, when I was a kid in, in western New York. And um, it was a bad, like every tree in our entire like region fell. And every power was out for like two weeks. We had like, 
Yeah, it was bad. Like you had to get, you needed a chainsaw to get like to the end of the driveway. And um, wow. yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a crazy times. And then like all that, we had a fireplace at the house I was living at. So like the neighbors came and lived with us for like two weeks. It was crazy. Oh, wow. But, wow. Um, that anyway, sounds yeah. like a Sounds like there's a poem in there. Yeah, it could be. I never wrote a poem about it. Maybe uh, we'll see what the prompt is next week. Maybe I can work it in. Um, <laughs> so you got Stranger joins me on stage. Is there anything you want to say about it before? Uh... Uh, well, it's just it's it's an uh, it's an old poem, uh, but after an hour of staring at the iPad with uh, <laughs> with no results, I decided that eh, you know it definitely fits the prompt. Cool. Well, let's uh, hear it. And, uh, okay, here it goes. I used to, just real quick, I used to run an open mic for years at a mm -hmm. local watering hole. And, um, sometimes they get up and, and they take over the stage and sometimes they get up and they just want to play with you. And so that's <laughs> what, that's what happened here. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, a stranger joins me on stage. Her sweeping wheat drenched hair swung toward me when she laughed through the smoky darkness. I heard her fingers scud across the guitar strings. Her lively soprano leaned into my tremulous tenor. We were singing the old song. We were doing good. Magnetic fields, shins, flaming lips, and rolling stones. Anything simple enough for me to strum along. The iPad on the music stand streamed the lyrics in a straight shot to our occipital lobes. They echoed through the whole body before resounding through our wavering mouths. Excellent. Thanks. A stranger joins me on stage. I still wish I was good enough to play music on stage, but I am not. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe if I if I didn't realize that I wasn't, I'd go to open mics. <laughs> I, I think that's part of the trip right there, for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, Brian. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Tim. Good yep. to see you. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Brent Stoffer. The stranger joins me on stage. Um, let us see... Ah, we have a uh, first-time caller here. Wait, no. Second-time caller. Victoria Victoria Garten is here. Hey, Victoria. Good evening. How are you doing tonight? See, it's doing it again. Anyway, so uh, so where are you calling from, Victoria? I don't remember. And um, and what do you have for us? I'm calling from southwest Missouri. Ah. And it was 14 below zero this morning. Burr, that's cold. And I have a... <laughs> I have a poem uh, called Cattle Woman Encounters a Stranger. I sent it uh, on an email yeah, I have a little right while here. ago. Yeah, I have it right here. Is there anything you want to say about it before you read, or do you want to just jump in? Um, well, it involves the kind of weather that we've been having and uh, tells a story of uh, a cattle, cattle woman out checking her, her cattle. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Let's hear it. Go ahead. Did you find it? I did, yeah. It's on screen for me. So just go ahead and read your own copy. Okay. Snow-blurred headlights appear at the open gate. Coral toward my flashlight's faint glow. Who is it? My palpating heart asks the frigid dark, urging my cow heart to the open door of the shed. 4 a.m., minus 14 degree wind on a Sunday. February 14, a mile from my house, would a ringing phone raise heavy sleepers? I trip over frozen clods, hope for a live birth, hope the calf will slide from warmth to a bed of straw in this cold world, 
hope my bundle of towels will not be needed. Door slam ricochets. Hope the bundled figure entering the beamed light is friend, not foe. A man's voice crackles the ice-fraught air. Sheriff's Department. His light holds my squint. Plays over heart's lifted tail. Two small hooves come and go as she walks. Had some robberies around here. My light brushes the deputy's face, getting her to shelter. Through stinging nettles of snow, the deputy on rounds steps from suspicion, and I step from fright to the gush and steam of a newborn landing on straw, and heart licks the calf as if devouring Valentine sweetness. Oh, that was excellent. Great story. Thanks so much for saying that. Cattlewoman Encounters a Stranger by Victoria Garden. Thanks, Victoria. Thank you. Good night. Okay. Victoria Garten, of course. And um, oh, here we have a 206. I'm trying to make sure you get the first-time callers. There's always a goal. Let's try a 206 and see who just called moments ago. Hello? Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Excellent. I think I hear myself in the background, so why don't you cut off the uh, stream that you're listening to and just be on the phone? There you are. There you go. Okay, great. And uh, so who am I talking to? Uh, my name is Topaz. Great. And did you send me uh, something by email? I did not uh, send uh, the poem by email. Okay. Well, uh, what do you have for us to share? We'll just listen then. Uh, all right. Uh, it is a poem. Um, I call it a uh, 360 poem. And uh, just uh, for point of reference, it's, it's sort of like an acrostic squared. The, uh, the title of the poem begins... Each line of the poem and is also contained within each line of the poem. Uh, and it's called Open Mic. Often, poetic exuberance needs more, I cognate. Pensively, exhausting neurons, meteoric incantations completely obliterate. Evading nirvana, Mind incessantly corrupts omniscient presence. Nothingness, Musashi indexes, contains opportunity's precursor. Metaphoric, metaphorical imagery celebrates other people's endless neuroses. Instigating cathode overload, prophets eugenics, narcissistic megalomaniacs. Creativity overrules proving experientially nameless means invincible. Excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. Very appropriate for the open lines. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. And your name is just Topaz? That's what I should put? Yep. Okay, cool. Topaz, thanks so much for calling. Oh, where are you calling from? I forgot to ask that too. Uh, Seattle. Seattle. Okay, cool. Well, thanks so much. Glad you could join us. All right. Thank you, Tim. Have a great night. You too. Yeah, it was Topaz from Seattle. Uh, let's see who we have next. Let's go to a uh, veteran next. Let's go to um, uh, let's do Richard Westheimer. See what Richard has. Uh, the strangers are awaited. Hey, Richard, how are you doing tonight? Are you staying warm and uh, you getting snow and stuff, or are you good? 
Yeah, well, both. We're warm and snow and good. Excellent. Well, that's that's the best way to be. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm here to report that I can't see you. Oh, either. I lost it. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sure. I, it's it's a great it's our loss here. <laughs> um, I did have a question about the poem that you read of yours. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, do you um, shape the interior white space? No, I don't. I um I sort of shape it by its sound. It's places you could pause if you want to. That's how I look at it. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it 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 looked you know somewhat shaped like people do you know yeah like the internal white space could be like the shape of somebody or something well i wasn't even thinking that it was you know concrete but that but but that it had some some intent like line length often mm-hmm. visual line length does sometimes in in the you know end stop poems so um just a question um it was it was it was really compelling form you know to to keep attention through a long poem like that it really it really trench put us on at least put me on a train track to oh, thank you i appreciate that um you know to to keep with the emotional um tenor and the story and stuff so yeah they're fun to, they're the ones i always used to like to read for my book the most they're they're just kind of i don't know they got an energy they're kind of fun yeah. um all right so the so what, what did you want to share the stranger awaited is there anything you want to say about it a stranger that awaited. Well, actually, it, it it has something in common with Nivy's poem, as you'll see, as I go through it. Yeah, now you know who the stranger is, yeah. uh, um, and it's you know it's related to the, the snow, which is uh, not unusual in the in the in past times, but is unusual since climate collapse has sort of been upon us. So, here we go. Okay, well, let's hear it. The stranger that awaited. I've missed snow, real snow like the old days, the kind that blurs boundaries, the lines between garden and yard, makes gas grills and garbage cans one with an ever-white world. We've had none around here for much of the last decade, until this week when a prodigious cold front sent in a foot of fresh powder Here on the farm, we celebrated. Deb pulled dust-covered skis from the shed. I cleaned mouse poop from my boots, fitted them with new insoles, restrapped the poles, gathered goggles, moth-eaten mittens, and long johns. I went out alone, followed tracks Deb had made through the woods, made my own way over fields down to our neighbor's farm, shed layers as I went, making a glowing red ember of myself, swirled by mist crystals. I was a prince of the ice sprites, magical, enchanted. Getting back was a slog, more labored than going out, and when I finally arrived home, I found a stranger, an older man, unexpected, at my front door, prying off his boots, limping around our house, prattling on about his arthritis, his aching back, his creaking knees. My wife seemed to know this fellow well, anticipated his arrival, thought to warn me I'd find him here upon my return, especially if I was gone long. Oblivious, I did not know what she knew until I encountered this strange aging man that was me. Oh, that was great. Somehow I forgot what you'd said at the beginning. 
and uh, was still surprised by the end anyway. That's how um, how bad my brain, my short-term memory is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might have been the enchanting ice crystals. Who knows? I think it was. Always, always great sounds and images with your poems. Thanks so much for sharing it, Richard. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate yeah. you. Good night. Good night. Okay, so um, I'm going to try. We have this problem where my um, my Skype camera keeps going out after like an hour. So I'm going to quit Skype and then turn it on again after a second. Maybe maybe that'll fix it. In the meantime, I think uh, Charlton, Carlton Johnson, I should say, I wanted to share a poem. And I'll do Carlton Johnson's Stranger Poem. Um, huh. Yeah, this camera just dies after an hour. Maybe I need a new, a new uh, little webcam there. Oh, well. I guess so if you call in over video you won't be able to see me but uh but you don't need to see me anyway as, as Richard said. Okay, so here is um Carlton Johnson's poem. And uh, this is The Stranger by Carlton Johnson. On the corner of Beach and 5th, I spy you standing there too waiting for the number 4 in a nifty orange fur-lined coat with matching gloves. My gaze turns toward you. I am struck dumb when you say love. Was it an inquiry, a demand, or a wish spoken without any inflection? I hang on like a poet waiting for the next inspired word. Do you have a word for me? She said with eyes like fire. Desire came to mind first, but I lied and said truth instead. The number four trindles up to a stop. The door whooshes open. I stand behind her in the queue. Was that strawberry I smelled, wafting on the spring breeze, mixed with a dose of diesel? You took three steps up, dropped the coins in, found a seat. All the while I watched you from the curb. It would never work, I tell myself, as the doors close. The next number four will be here soon anyway. So I stand in the cool air, a setting moon my lone companion. Oh, I love that ending. Thanks so much. That was Carlton Johnson with The Stranger. Thanks, Carlton. Let's see. Next up, let's call... Um, let's call up Caitlin Buxbaum. See what Caitlin has for us this evening. Yeah, we have a lot of people uh, in line. I'm, we'll try to get to everybody. 20 minutes still. Caitlin has... Uh, oh, here she is. Here she comes. Can you hear me? I can. Hello, Caitlin. Yeah. Um, well, I have bad news. I'm actually in the car, and I've got oh. you on, so I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, good to hear from you, and um, great, great poems. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, well, drive safe, Caitlin, and uh, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> so it's Caitlin Buxbaum live from her car. Um, let us try instead James Gaynor. We also have Joseph Nolan looking through the list here. Um, let's see. Then, uh, yeah. So let's do James Gaynor. We have Susan Talley. We have a couple of people who asked me to read poems. Um, Angela Gartner's down here, too. But let's uh, let's do James Gaynor next. Then we'll do Angela. Then uh, move up the list. Susan Talley. So let's see. So calling up James right now. Hello, Tim. Hey, James, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, so what do you have to share today? Um, well, I have a, a poem about a chance encounter with, the, with a stranger. That's um, a, it's a fascinating um, form of poem here, too, I see. Ingredients of passion. Well, 
You know, I very much, I, I really like uh, looking at how a poem presents itself on the page. I was very interested in your train poem for that reason. And uh, what I wanted to do with uh, this one, because so many of my really important uh, gay parenting uh, uh, episodes happened in the cereal aisle of our local grocery store. <laughs> oh, that's great. And, uh, and so I wrote this poem kind of imagining um, a stranger in the uh, cereal aisle. Well, that's a really fun idea. Let's hear it. I'm, I'm excited for this. Okay. And it looks, it's, yeah, I, I made the box to look like what it looks like on the side of, of Kellogg. Yeah, yeah, uh, we see it. Ingredients of passion. Uh, we meet in the cereal aisle, drawn to each other by a shared love of whole grain wheat, sugar, rice, raisins, wheat bran, whole grain oats, brown sugar syrup, vegetable glycerin, corn syrup, salt, natural flavors, modified cornstarch, molasses, palm oil, cinnamon, honey, and mixed tocopherol, aqua vitamin E for freshness, all contained in 15.9 ounces of Kellen of Kellogg's registered trademark, Raisin Bran registered trademark, Crunch Original. The, the classic delicious balance of crispy wheat bran flakes and two scoops of plump juicy raisins that never ceases to make morning amazing. Then we go our separate ways. Excellent. Thanks so much for doing that. It was a really fun poem. Fun poem. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good night, James. Have a good night, James. You too. Bye. Bye. That was James Gaynor with uh, Ingredients of Passion. I like it. I like it. Okay. Um, next up, let's call... Who do I say? Oh, yeah, Angela. Let's call up Angela Gardner. Hey, Angela. How are you doing tonight? Good. No camera on today. Okay. <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> I can't see you either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't figure out how to fix it. I think my camera just... Maybe it, like, overheats? I don't know. I have to... Yeah. I haven't... No, it can't be because that was actually happening. That's already the second camera that I switched out. So I don't know what's happening. Um, yeah, Skype, that is. Yeah, but technology. Right? Yeah, it's only so. the, it's only the Skype camera. So for the so people can't see me the whole time, I guess. But anyway, um, so what do you have for a stranger poem? Um, do you want to explain it a little bit? Um, I'm not going to explain it too much, but um, it's funny because I was thinking he's probably like she kind of fluffed this one because the title is the friends, but I didn't. So you'll see. Okay. Um, so the title is the friends and it's actually, I, I worked on a play like for a long time. So it's funny. You said yours was kind of based off something a fiction that you were working on. This was kind of, I took kind of, you know, I was working on a play and you know, it's, it is, it's it's kind of the beginnings from that, but it kind of goes off the rails after that. So. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> okay. The friends. The two friends were sitting on a park bench talking about their latest conquests. A man ran by and dropped an envelope filled with money. Was it a dope deal that went wrong or cops coming along? They heard the loud bang and saw the man fall. Blood squirted from his head as he sprawled across the pathway. The one friend picked up the newfound wealth, put it in his pocket, and fled, leaving the other to fend for himself, where he sat and stared at what occurred. Afterward, he thought to go to see how much he can get. 
After all, he knew his friend committed a crime of theft. He went home and got his stored away gun. He formed a plan to go see his friend's son, talk to him about his dad indiscretion, and take him for ransom. When he arrived at the house, everyone was gone, but his friend, who was shot dead on the lawn. A short note was nailed onto his naked chest. It said, I know, rat, shouldn't have messed with us. Fleeing the scene, he decided he didn't know his friend. Oh, wow. I hope that's not a true story. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I just went in a crazy direction. but. <laughs> right, well, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for sharing that, Angela. Thank you. Have a great day. Yep, you too. Thanks. Angela Gardner with the friends. With friends like that, I don't know. I'm glad I don't have many. Um, let's call up um, who? Oh, Susan Talley, I said was next. And we have Joseph Nolan, too. Um, Carla Schwartz just called in. We'll get to as many people as we can. I already said Susan Talley. Let's do Susan. Um, she has only a few drops left. i got to throw it in a uh, Word doc really quick here. Hello. Hey, Susan, how are you doing this evening? I'm really good. Um, I didn't want to confuse you. I think I was too enthused. I, <laughs> I have one that's about a stranger, so the no simple truth. Okay, let me uh, Okay, let me find a different one then, Susan. Oh, here we but go. But I Close. love the prompt. Yeah, it was a fun okay. one. Yeah, hang on one but second. But the other one with the bucket, I, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> That's okay. The bucket one inspired me, and it's so short. So if you're short on time, the little one, I would read. Read whichever one. We'll pick one, but read one. Uh, which one would okay. you prefer? No, no simple truth. Okay, because we are, we are running up on time, I think, a little bit. We'll just do Thank that Thank you. One. Yeah, great. Let me. Uh, Excuse me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, here we go. Oops. Just one second. got to get it on screen. Okay. Okay, go the ahead. The other possibility is, if would you consider reading it? Because I would just love to hear you read it. Oh, sure. That's I could, possible. Sure, Thank you. Sure, I could do that too. Sure. Okay, I'll do. Okay, bye, Susan. Thank you. Okay, so this is No Simple Truth by Susan Talley. And uh, here we go. I still have to pull it into um, this viewer. Is that going to pop up? There we go. No Simple Truth. At the end of the hall... One apartment has no name, just an eviction notice. I imagine an apartment with no furniture and a mattress on the bare floor. Looking down at the street below, he keeps his Venetians hanging at half X. I imagine that the loud shatter of sports announcers takes place, the place of roommates and dinner companions. I see him balancing things when inserting his key to avoid looking at what's tacked on his door. When I tried to read the words inside the black tape, my heart raced as I scurried down the stairwell. I never liked this man with unkempt hair. He never said hello. A neighbor told me that he used to own a dry-cleaning business. I imagine that his trousers drag with the last pieces of Taylor's Velcro. He wears the same drab clothes every day. He is a frequent launderer. When I run into him shuffling between washer and dryer. He drops socks and misplaces laundry cards. I want to ask how he is, but I'm afraid he doesn't do questions. Oh, that is a mysterious stranger. No simple truth. Thanks so much for sharing that. It was Susan Talley. I appreciate it. I like that poem. Okay. Um, we have just 10 minutes left, and um, we have Joseph Nolan. 
Let's see if Joseph's here. And then uh, Carla Schwartz. And um, ah, so Shilpa well, wants us to read to the Lion Dance. Hey, Joseph, can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? I can. Hello, how are you doing tonight? Oh, and you Good. popped in too. Uh, Good to see do you. I need to mute the um, YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear? Still hear me? Okay. I hear you perfectly. Yep. Okay. Good. Okay. My poem this evening is called "E Isn't Coming to Your Rescue." Okay. Give me give me one second to uh, set it up. And um, is there anything you want to say about it? E E. Of course. Yes. E it's coming. just um, a commentary on the process of writing poetry. Okay. Cool. Well. Uh... I'm about ready. Get it big enough. Okay. Go ahead whenever you're ready. We're, we're, we're all set. Okay. E.E. E. Cummings isn't coming to your poetic rescue. He's not amused to you, nor would he likely choose to be one. When you are turned upside down, searching for the verb or noun with which to fill a line, the one that fits in perfectly, as though from the divine. E.E. E. isn't coming to your rescue. You have to write it on your own. You have to sweat and rack your bones. Sensitive to undertones of words that drift off sideways into innuendo. You didn't intend, oh. How hard it is to get it right. In the middle of writer's night when E.E. E. isn't coming to your rescue. Oh, that was great. I love that. E.E. E. isn't coming to your rescue. Great rhymes in there and stuff. Thanks so much. That was Joseph Nolan. Excellent reading as always. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. Good night. It's Joseph Nolan with E.E. Uh, e. isn't coming to your rescue. Um, let's call it Carla Schwartz. Get to Carla's poem. Let's see. Hi. Hey, Carla. How are you doing tonight? I am. I am good. I just tuned, you know, muted, and uh, I know you're short on time. And thank you. And um, so uh, we don't have a lot of. We have snow, but we are. We had rain today, so we're in a totally different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But uh, anyway, I, I actually skied to across Lake Winnipesaukee uh, this weekend. It was really nice. Oh, that's fun. And, um, and so this is uh, a poem called uh, Love Struck. So it's a love poem, it's Valentine's Day. And uh, it is a very short poem. And uh, it's about meeting a stranger who is not a stranger to me anymore. When I locked the car and set out for that swim, that very warm, sunny day. Unwittingly, I approached a crucial juncture as I walked toward the pond where I once swam with my father. I met the eyes of love, although these were hard to read. So I, unaware, didn't realize I needed convincing, but with my face open like a shovel, I smiled back and without thinking, dug in. Oh, another great ending. Great ending tonight and a nice love poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care, um, 
Tim. <laughs> okay, you too. Good night. <laughs> Bye. And that was CB99 Videos. I mean, Carla. Shorts with a, a love poem for Valentine's Day. Love struck. Um, let me see. So um, where did it go? trying to find oh yeah here it is the lion dance so so um shilpa asked me if i would read this for her let me read this and then we'll get to we have a few minutes left this is shilpa's poem lion dance and um put it here make it a little bigger okay lion dance there we go oh there we go lion dance okay lion dance Bottled tarts line kitchen shelves. I recall their crumbly sweet taste. Gigi declutters the patio, places mandarins on my piano, a pair like ivory and ebony. It is the week of riverbank memory. Portal nights are unwavering under jasmine skies, days on a silent retreat braided to words. I fend off the longing. Symbols and drums snap the air. The furry body, yellow, crimson, ruby-eyed, rolls left, then right. Reach, reach, people roar behind the slatted window. My palms reach to the pale horizon. Tears undo blistered seasons. The lion hops, turns, and jumps. The banner of fortune flutters, feasts on the spring breeze. Higher, higher, the crowd hails the silken trail. I mumble reprieve, cutting through clamor. Peach blossoms stray through the ashen walls. Gigi claps in glee. Oh, excellent poem. That's Lion Dance. Um, once again by Shilpa. Thanks so much for sharing that beautiful uh, sounds and music in that poem. I loved it. Um, let me see. A couple more. Uh, let me see what we can do really quick with a few seconds left. Um, so this is, um, this is Ralph Culver and it's a, pr a prose poem for, um, the encounter. Do we have enough time? Yeah, we have four minutes. Let, let's try it. Um, this is a prose poem by Ralph Culver, who I, maybe he was the one at one of those numbers that didn't pick up. Um, but let's see. Um, it's just called, what's it called? It's just called Encounter. That's the title by Ralph Culver. Here we go. Um, encounter. In Mercersburg, the tired figure of man walking his dog, a dog that is so aged, overweight, and arthritic, it's a miracle of sorts, that it can move at all, the chain lead strung so slackly between the man's right hand and the dog who follows a good fifteen feet behind him, that links of the chain drag on the sidewalk. The man wears an ancient army coat with a fur-lined hood, and what seemed to be ancient fur-lined bedroom slippers on his feet. He never turns his head to regard the dog's progress or to assess its well-being, but in essence ignores it. Soon it will rain, the man thinks. It will be good for the corn, although the fields outside Mercersburg are vast pools of white ice in the last light of late afternoon. With no farmer here giving corn seed a thought for another eight weeks at least, what the dog thinks, we can only hazard a guess. The man shuffles forward a few steps, but the dog has stopped, and the lead gradually grows more taut. Soon it will rain, the man thinks. It will be good for the flowers. The dog, its legs stuck still, 
turns its nose away from the man, paying him no more attention than the man has afforded the dog. Standing there quietly and unmoving, the two of them join by fifteen feet of chain that hangs at its lowest point a few inches off the concrete, a parabola of chrome steel links between fixed points. A few raindrops begin to fall hesitantly, as though the clouds above might have had other ideas. And that was Encounter by Ralph Carver. Thanks so much for that great uh, great pose, poem, a little character sketch. Excellent work. I really like uh, what's coming out of this prompt this week. Um, let me see if Vicky Miko has um, a short one. We'll do that. If it's a longer one, I don't think we have. Yeah, it's a longer one. Sorry, Vicky. Um, well, whatever. Let's do Vicky Miko's too. This is a um, 13 minute interlude. This will be the last one for the day. Let me make sure no one's waiting for me for a call first. Um, hang on one second. Um, okay. Okay, so we're gonna do um, we're gonna do Vicky Miko's, and this is a thirteen minute interlude, and it's not, it's not gonna be thirteen minutes, but it's another um, high go with a hyben, um, so it's got um, visuals, it's got a, a one line sonnet or one line haiku, I think, and um, a prose to start. So uh, here we go, thirteen minute interlude by Vicky Miko. Thirteen minute interlude. I met a looper on the sidewalk. Oh wait. Okay. Vicky Miko just sent me a message, but that's okay. I'm going to read it, Vicky. Don't worry about it. 13-minute interlude. I met a looper on a sidewalk, both of us in the middle, a crossroad by chance. One step faster and its life would have been flattened. By some unexplained whim, I sat down on the pavement to watch its crossing. How did it get there, all alone in the middle of the concrete? Dropped from its threat by a small piece of wind, perhaps? But no, there was no attachable trees, only squares of wild roses and mulberry thickets, not much taller than my kneecaps. Why did it wander out there, leaving behind some green homeland? Was it looking for another fertile bedding on the side of the road, on the other side? Was it natural in its juices to know the danger of a hungry, snarling, a quick, a hungry starling, a quick-footed lizard of me, I noticed our supposed affinity, both of us on our way to some untouched place. It with its probable intentions, me with my would-be possibilities. But for what purpose did we meet, there in the middle of the sidewalk? All but thirteen minutes, I engaged the looper's effective gait across the flatland, unlike me, with my up and down, forward and backward and sideways. Unfazed by pauses or directions, the looper never stopped, not once. It headed straight to where there was more of the same. Of course, I had no way of knowing what or how or even if a looper would know that both sides of the sidewalk were the same. Did it have a sense of me there, my heaviness compared to its tiny rhythm? Was our interlude just a boring, random moment or a cause? When we both reached the other side, I took one last glance before it disappeared into the brush. On my way back, to my never-there-before place, I wondered why I chose to stop, distracted by this tiny looper, barely visible at my feet. How enviable, I thought, its up-and-down forward reverie. The snooper, one day's purpose for another day. Actually, I love that. That was great. And look at the photo for those... Um, <laughs> I was going to say, look at the photo for those only listening. But uh, if you're watching, there's a, a photo... If you're only listening, there's a photo of a... Looper? I'm not familiar. Um, like an inchworm type um, creature. 
I've never heard of the phrase looper before, but I'm sure that's what it is. Thanks for sharing that, Vicky. That was 13-minute interlude. Um, I always love reading uh, your poems and, and how you always share. Like uh, um, how you always share pictures too. Really great. It makes for great a uh, great rattlecast. Thanks, Vicky. Um, let's see. Okay. Well, um, I think that's going to be all we have time for today. It's past, it's past uh, two hour, the two hour mark. So, um, it's time to let you know what, um, next week's prompt is going to be. And next week's prompt will be, I think I'll just make PDS next week instead of printing stuff out. Next week's prompt is going to be the road not taken by Robert Frost is arguably one of the most famous poems in the English language. Write a poem that imagines a scenario in which the speaker takes the road more traveled. So, you know, with The Road Not Taken is famous, um, we're going to write a poem about the road more traveled instead of less. And that is the prompt for next week, The Road More Traveled. Um, And uh, once again, next week's guest is going to be... Uh, Derek Sheffield. Um, Derek Sheffield has uh, this new book, Not for Luck. Um, He's also the author of Through the Second Skin and co-editor of Dear America, Letters for Hope, Habitat, Defiance, and Democracy. So we might continue that discussion uh, that we had a little bit at the end with Rebecca Starks about political poetry. Um, But his book just came out uh, from Wheelbarrow Books um, not too long ago, just a few weeks ago. Looking forward to that. Derek Sheffield and, of course, Zoe Sheffield will be joining us, too, for a, a poem at the very beginning. Um, his, his daughter beat him into rattle um, in the uh, Rattle Young Poets anthology a few years ago. Uh, but Derek joined, uh, joined her in this uh, issue number 70 that just came out in the, in the spring. Or in the uh, winter, I should say. So anyway, that is uh, next week's Rattlecast. Number 81, Derek Sheffield, February 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And the prompt is, write a poem that imagines a scenario in which the speaker takes the road more traveled. That's your prompt. That's your guest. Looking forward to it. Hope you have a great week. Stay warm. Stay safe, everybody. And uh, I'll see you Friday for the Critique of the Week and Sunday for Open Lines. And then Tuesday for Derek Sheffield. Talk to you soon. Have a great night. Bye.